Scripture reading for this morning is from Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we're in a section of Mark in which Jesus is unpacking what it means to deny yourself and follow him. And the section began back in Mark chapter 8, where Jesus told his disciples that he would suffer many things and be rejected and be killed and then would rise on the third day. And then he told them this in chapter 8, verse 34, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's the beginning of a section that ends in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where Jesus said that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And in between, you have this section in which Jesus is teaching what that looks like in everyday situations. Last week, we saw what that looked like as it relates to relationships within the church and as it relates to personal sin. This Sunday, this passage we're talking about this Sunday is about marriage. Jesus tells us what it looks like to follow him in the way of the cross when it comes to marriage. (laughs) Marriage. Jesus is saying in effect to his disciples, for those of you who are married or who are going to marry, I'm adding another area for you to deny yourself and follow me. Your marriage. Because your marriage isn't ultimately about you. And it's not about your spouse. It's ultimately about the two of you learning how to follow me together. Together. It's one thing to deny yourself when it comes to, well, yourself. It's just you. It's another thing to deny yourself when it comes to your parents or your friends or your co-workers or your kids, but it is another thing entirely to take up your cross day by day for richer or for poorer in sickness and in health and deny yourself and follow Jesus side by side till death do you part. I've done a fair number of weddings in my ministry. I've had people ask me for all kinds of crazy things to be added to the wedding ceremony. I have yet to have someone say to me, you know, we think it would be really awesome if, you know, the two of us at the end of the service, after the groom has kissed the bride, could actually leave carrying a cross. Hasn't happened. But, in a way, it fits. Don't 
don't ask me if you're thinking about getting married. I don't want to do that. But you get the idea. Jesus is saying, let's take this idea of denying yourself, taking up your cross and following me, and let's ask ourselves, what does that look like in marriage? What does denying yourself and following Jesus look like in your marriage? The Pharisees weren't getting anywhere near close to that question. They didn't want to know anything about the cost of following Jesus in marriage. They wanted to know how easily someone could get out of marriage. Their view of marriage was common in their day. It was common in the day of Moses, to which both Jesus and the Pharisees are referring in this passage. And it's common in our day. It wasn't that long ago that a woman by the name of Susan Gadua, an author and a blogger for Psychology Today, recommended renewable contract marriages. Two-year renewable contract for a companionship marriage. A five-year renewable contract for a financial security marriage. And a 20-year renewable contract for a parenting marriage. It's marriage with an escape clause. Divorce is messy, so why not make getting out easy? And into all that, Jesus says you're missing the true meaning of marriage. In the midst of this, con- this conversation and this test about divorce and the rupture or the terror that that causes, Jesus says you're missing the point entirely. So I'm going to take you back and talk about the true meaning of marriage. So that's where we're headed this morning. There's three things we're going to see as we look at this text. First, the test. Second, the tear. And then third, the true meaning of marriage. So the test, the tear, and the true meaning of marriage. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we do thank you for this difficult and hard passage. Lord, for many of us, it is uh, hard because we've experienced the pain of this tear. And for many of us, it's hard because we're living in a marriage that doesn't reflect the true meaning for which you have provided it. So I ask that by your Spirit, even as you teach us from this text, you would comfort us, you would encourage us, you would bring us hope and renewal, no matter what state we find ourselves in relative to marriage. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so first, the test. The Pharisees test Jesus. Take a look again at verse 1. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again and again. As was his custom, he taught them, and the Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, the context matters here. The details of this test are very significant. First of all, they're in the region that's controlled by Herod. Second, Jesus is being tested by a group of Pharisees. And third, the nature of the test centers on divorce. Now, why are those three facts relevant? Well, remember from earlier in our study of Mark, Herod was the one who killed John the Baptist. The Pharisees and the Herodians We know from Mark chapter 3, we're already trying to find a way to kill Jesus. Now, why was John the Baptist killed? John the Baptist was killed because he spoke out against Herod and his marriage to his brother's wife. 
Herod's brother's wife left him in order to marry Herod. And so what were the Pharisees perhaps thinking? You know, if we can get Jesus, I mean, here we are, we're in Herod's area. He's in control of this region. If we can get Jesus to speak against divorce, or against, um, yeah, against divorce, maybe Herod will do our dirty work for us. So that could have been going on. Most likely was what's going on here in this passage. But I think another uh, option, another you know, dual way in which they're trying to undercut Jesus may have been just, are you going to contradict what the law of Moses said or not? That could have been happening as well. Either way, Jesus was being tested. Now, what about the tests that we face? Jesus is teaching his disciples what it means to follow him. Jesus is saying, if you follow me, you are going to face opposition. If you hold to my teaching, you will be reviled. They hated me, John 15, 18. They hated me, they're going to hate you. You should expect this. Dick Lucas put it this way, the world wants us to conform and comes to hate those who will not do so. Thus, loyalty to Jesus must involve a cost, a price to pay. If we hold faithful to the biblical view of marriage, we should expect to be opposed. How should we respond? How did Peter instruct Christians in Rome to respond? Overthrow the emperor? Take Rome in Jesus' name? No. Peter said in 1 Peter 2.12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. How did Jesus enter Jerusalem? On a war horse? To take back the capital? No. He entered on a donkey, coming in peace, led like a lamb to the slaughter, turning the other cheek. We should, be, we should expect to be tested for holding to a biblical view of marriage, and we should plan to respond biblically. More importantly, though, I think this text is challenging us to think about how we're tested in marriage. Again, Jesus is offering an opportunity to think through what it means to follow him in the context of marriage. You do know what your biggest problem in your marriage is, right? Your spouse. Some of you are hoping that's true. Some of you are pointing to your spouse. Don't do that. No, the biggest problem in your marriage is not your spouse. The biggest problem in your marriage is you. It's not your spouse. It's not your kids. It's not the house. It's not your job. It's You, unless your marriage is marked by gross sin on the part of your spouse, then the greatest problem in your marriage is you. Self-centeredness is the main problem in most marriages. So, what does it look like to follow Jesus in marriage? Find your life in Him Don't make your marriage your salvation. Don't expect your spouse to be your savior. Let your heart be first filled with the love of Christ. As you do that, you will be freed from needing desperately to be loved by your spouse to being able to move towards your spouse in 
the love of Christ. And when both the husband and the wife are doing this in marriage, your marriage can truly sing. Expect to be tested because of your view of marriage, but expect to be tested in your marriage. And if you've been married for more than 18 months, you already know what I'm talking about. Second, let's talk about the tear. Look at verse 5. In verse 5, Jesus answered them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses wrote you this commandment. So what were they, what were they, what were they doing? They said, how often, you know, in, in the parallel passage in Matthew 19, what they say is, you know, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? And back in Moses' day, that's exactly what was happening. In Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, to which Jesus is referring, what was happening there was that a, a man would decide to send away his wife for any, any reason. She burnt my dinner. I found somebody else more attractive. And just sending them away. In that culture, that put the wife in an incredibly dangerous position. She's now without a husband, without any kind of protection. And so, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, God provides through Moses a concession for the sake of the protection of the vulnerable party in the former marriage. By the time you get to Jesus' day, you had two major camps. The, the, the Jewish camp, or the, the, those who followed the rabbi, the camp of the Shammai, and those who followed the camp of Hillel. The camp of Shammai were incredibly, uh, you know, and I think rightly conservative on this view. They said it's only in the case of, of adultery that a, that a divorce can take place. The other camp, you know, basically was holding to that idea of it doesn't matter. You know, if you're not happy, send her away. And Jesus, again, is saying, you, you're looking to Deuteronomy chapter 24 as if it provides you grounds and rights relative to divorce. You're missing the fact, because of the hardness of your heart, that Deuteronomy only took place in order to protect those women. It was concession for the sake of protection. Jesus' problem is, you know, Jesus' answer is, the problem really is the hardness of your heart. But then rather than unpacking that issue more, he returns to what God's intent for marriage from the very beginning actually was. So take a look at verses 6 through 8. Jesus says, But from the beginning of creation God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What was God's design for marriage from the beginning, a lifelong union between one man and one woman. Jesus quotes from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. He quotes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. In other words, before the fall, before sin entered into, entered into the world, God's design for human flourishing in marriage was one man, one woman, in union, as long as they both shall live. This is what makes gay marriage not only sinful, but tragic. Anything other than one flesh union between one man and one woman cuts against what makes for human flourishing according to God's design. God gave marriage between one man and one woman as the way to run along the grain of God's design in order to bring flourishing 
for people, individuals, for marriages, for families, for society. The tragedy of living contrary to God's design for marriage is that it cuts against the grain of what makes for human flourishing. It doesn't run with it. God's design is for two to become one flesh, which is more than just sexual union. It is a whole-souled union. It is a leaving of parents and a cleaving to one another. A covenant bond that involves public vows. Not a relationship based on feeling that can be left when the feeling has gone away. I've also had people come to me whenever I do wedding ceremonies and say, we'd like to write our own vows. And I always say no. I wish our pastor would have said no to us. Because we wrote our own vows and they were so lame. I mean, anyone who had been married more than two years was saying, gag me with a spoon. Which it was 1991, so that was a really relevant phrase. It was totally based on how we felt about each other at that time. A marriage vow is not about how you feel right now. It's about what you will do as long as you both shall live. It's a vow taken before God to be loving, to be present, to be faithful, no matter how you feel, as long as you both shall live. It's a public vow made before God and witnesses. And God's design for that marriage is that it never be separated. Jesus says, reiterating what Scripture said about let, you know, let it not be run asunder. Let no man tear this apart. What divorce therefore entails is a tear in that one flesh union. If marriage is a one flesh union joined by God and not to be broken, then if the person who initiated the divorce were to remarry, he or she would be committing adultery. Now there's two exceptions that we see to this in Scripture. And again, let me, let me just read what Jesus says here so we can feel the weight of it before I mention the exceptions that he brings in elsewhere. Uh, verses 10 through 12. Right? Disciples are like, whoa, Jesus. You know, they're in the house. They're like, what are, you, what are you talking about? You want to step back on that a little bit? And Jesus says, no, let me dial in. Verse 10 and following. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Whenever there's a, a, a breaking of this one flesh union and a corresponding joining of one of the members of this one flesh union to someone else, it constitutes adultery. Now what Jesus says elsewhere, in Matthew chapter 19, the parallel passage, and in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says there is a, a ground, there's an exception to this no divorce teaching because of the tear that it renders in the one flesh union. And that is the tear that is caused when there is adultery while the marriage is still intact. And so Jesus says in Matthew 19 and Matthew chapter 5, except for porneia, which is 
the Greek word that covered any physical sexual union with someone outside of marriage. And Jesus said in the context of that, when that happens, divorce is permitted. It's not required, it's not commanded, but it's permitted because such a violation of the one flesh union between the husband and the wife has taken place. It's often irreparable. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is dealing with a situation that that wouldn't have been relevant in Jesus' day. Paul is dealing with the situation in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 where a believer is married to a non-believer and the non-believer chooses to leave the marriage. In that instance, Paul says, let him go. Desertion. People today, and I think not just today, but throughout history, have recognized that abuse in the context of a marriage relationship is a form of desertion. It is deserting the marriage vows. You're just staying home instead of leaving. But it is still desertion. In the case of abuse, which is often abuse of the woman by the man, what's needed immediately is to get out and get safe and get legal protection, and seek justice. But even in that situation, divorce is permitted by something, because of the great, by God, because of the great violation that has taken place in that union between the husband and wife. When either desecration of the marriage because of adultery or desertion by an unbeliever occurs, a tear has taken place already. But divorce for any reason other than those constitutes a tear. Jesus says what God has joined together, we must not tear asunder. Now, what that means, if you are married now, having been divorced, and that divorce was unbiblical, that doesn't mean that you are now living in a state of perpetual adultery. You are married. Marriage is good. God does not want to see marriages end in divorce. So don't think if you're married, remarried, after having been divorced and the divorce not being biblical, that God's solution to that, His call, is for you to divorce. It is not. His call is for you to entrust yourself entirely to Him, you and your spouse. Repent where repentance is needed. Receive the grace that is yours in Jesus Christ. And then seek to follow Jesus faithfully in your present marriage. That takes us on to the third point then, which is the true meaning of marriage. Jesus has unpacked what marriage really is about, like what it's meant for, humanly speaking, what it constitutes, a one flesh union between husband and wife. But there's a deeper meaning to marriage. And that is to provide a window on the mystery that is Christ and the church. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is talking about marriage. But then he gets to verse 32 and says, I'm actually not just talking about marriage. I'm talking about this great mystery. And the mystery is how your marriage, your ordinary everyday marriage, points to this great mystery that is the union between Jesus Christ and his church. Now don't forget, mystery in the Bible doesn't mean something that's you know, beyond understanding. It just means something that was once hidden, 
and is now revealed. And so this relationship of the Savior Jesus Christ to his bride, the church, was a mystery that was hidden, but with Christ, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and the outpouring of the Spirit, is now revealed. And what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 5 is that marriage, one man, one woman, in union, as long as they both shall live, actually opens up a window. So as people look upon that, they see something of what it means for Jesus Christ to love his bride, the church. Now, when does that happen in our marriage? Well, I think it happens in many different ways. But the one way that I want to focus on in the little bit of time we have left this morning is the way that relates most directly to the issue at hand, divorce. The way in which something of the mystery of marriage, the mystery of the marriage of Christ to his bride, the church, for whom he laid down his life and died that they might be forgiven, and the mystery that is human marriage, the way in which the one points to the other is whenever the drama of redemption is on display. You see, marriage necessarily involves conflict. Necessarily. Because it's the proving ground in which God is refining us and making Him more like Him. God brings into close relationship with you, a sinner, another sinner. That's inevitably going to lead to the trial, the test that is conflict, out of which you both can come out looking more like Jesus. So in a marriage, when, not if, one sins, and moves toward the other in confession and repentance, and the other responds with forgiveness and grace. And when that's happening both ways, over the course of a marriage, the drama of redemption is on display. And a window is being thrown open so that people can look onto the mystery that is the relationship of Christ and His bride. We spend a lot of time defending the biblical view of marriage, and that is important. We ought to be devoting equal time to displaying the beauty of Christian marriage, to throwing open a window on the mystery. That's where a biblical marriage directs our gaze. When a husband and wife die to self and live for Christ, Christ is glorified. The gospel is on display. And by grace, others may see Him in your marriage. Your ordinary, everyday, imperfect, but redeemed and being made new marriage. Because marriage isn't ultimately about you. And it isn't ultimately about your spouse. It's ultimately about Jesus and His love for His bride. So what do we do with this? If you're single and desire to be married, married one day, may God bless that. But in the meantime, rejoice in knowing what it means to be the bride of Jesus. Nurture that spiritual union 
so that by it you may be prepared should God call you into marriage. If you are presently married, nurture that spiritual union with Jesus Christ. Because out of that, you are able to move toward your spouse, not in a position of need, but in a position of strength, not needing desperately to be loved, but ready to love because you are filled with the fullness of the measure of God as you have received in your heart the love of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we think of that great passage in Ephesians 3 and in which you invite us to join Paul in praying that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses understanding, the breadth and the height and the width and the depth. Lord, in the knowing beyond understanding, we're called not just to know intellectually, but to taste, to see, to experience something of what it means to be loved by Jesus. Lord, we, we need that whether single or married. Or for those of us who are married, would you help us to feed on you? Would you enable us to experience more of your love for us that we might move toward our spouse in love and in so doing, reflect what it means for you to have moved toward us in love. Or do this in a way that allows marriages to sing and be a window onto the mystery that is the relationship between you and your church. And we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus.